Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Well, let's go ahead and get, uh, get started. And um, it'll be in Acts chapter 1. Yeah. You know, the nice thing, Bart, you missed a whole week and you haven't missed anything because we, we're going to be in verse 1 here, you know. I think we're still a little further than John left on Sunday. <laughs> Bart's, in my, uh, my, Bart's in my class on Sunday morning and one time he took a, he was off like three weeks or something like that and he came back and we were we were still in the same verse that he had when he when he went. We had, we, yeah. All right, well let's uh let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this night and uh for being able to be here, Father, we thank you and appreciate you for Allowing us to gather together to learn your word, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds as we discuss this. Give us insight into what you would teach us. And thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, last week we did a lot of background information in the book of Acts. I'm not going to go back over that. Um, by the way, those who weren't here, I got CDs you can catch up on this stuff. Um, but where we left off, and I, I want to pick up and talk a little bit more and just, uh, you know, before we go on into the book of Acts and to really understand it, and that's this whole concept um, of the book of Acts being a transition. Remember, we talked about that. What's, a tra- what's it a transition from? The old covenant to the new covenant. All right. And as... Um, we discussed somewhat in the class last week when most people think of the Old Covenant and salvation, what do they think of? Works. Um, yeah, the, the Jews were saved because they killed the animals, because they brought their sacrifices and things like that. Was Is that a true statement? No, it's not. And the reason it's not a true statement is, one, theologically it's not true, but but two, if righteousness came by the works, then all of Paul's arguments, right, in Romans, where it says it's not by works but by grace, that would be a bad argument, right? Because it would have been by works. It would have been by what they did. And who would have been the righteous people when Christ was walking around? The Pharisees, right? Because they were doing the things, right? They were keeping the law. So we said that salvation in any time period is by what? By faith. It's appropriated by faith. But what is it founded in? God's grace. And what is grace? It's unmerited. Can you, you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You've done nothing for it. Right? And we can get into the whole you know, predestination election thing about why did God decide to give you grace and not somebody else grace. We're not going to do that here, but it's always by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it says. Um, All these people in the Old Testament, it was always by grace. They didn't deserve it. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. However, to appropriate the grace of God, what did they have to do? By faith. faith. In what? 
yeah, whatever God told him to believe in, right? Um, what did Noah believe in? And he believed it, and he did it. He had no concept of who Jesus was, or Christ, or Messiah. All he knew is that God told him to build a boat, and he did that. That was what he did. What did Abel know? Yeah, God told him to bring a lamb, and Abel said, okay, I will bring a lamb. What did Moses know? Well, whatever God told him. What did Abraham know? God told him, I'll make a great nation of you. So it's always been by faith. It's always been appropriated by faith. All right? And it doesn't matter what era you were born in, what year of human history you were born in, salvation has always been by believing what God has told you to believe, what God has given you at that time. So what did the Jews believe? Did they believe in the afterlife of some kind? Um, yes. I mean, there was a belief in the afterlife. Um, it was not refined. You know, the concept of a heaven and a hell, um, to the Jew it was Sheol. It was the place of the pit. It was a hollow place, the low place. Um, there was not a refinement of like, you know, eternal punishment, you know, heaven. They, they, they didn't have that refined knowledge. They, they knew that they would go to a place where they would be with God. But what that was like, they, they really didn't know. It was really not defined. So they didn't believe that all they had was today, living for today, and that's it. They did believe. Yeah, they believed in they believed in an afterlife. They believed in going to be with God. They believed in that. Um, they they didn't have a great understanding of what all that meant and all the implications of it. Um, we we know more about that in the New Testament because Christ told us a lot. Um, he revealed more to us. And of course, we have the book of Revelation, which we wind up in heaven. So we know what it's like. Um, and Christ taught a lot about hell. In fact, he taught more about hell than any other person in the Bible. So we know about that. Um, but it, it, was not, it was not a very deep understanding. you got to understand that, you know, we look back at the Jews and we say, what a bunch of ignoramuses. You know, how could they be so stupid to missed the Messiah. Well, you know what? If you were back then, you would be one of the ignoramuses. You would have missed them too. All right? You would have missed it too. Don't be too hard on them. Um, you would have missed it. You wouldn't have understood it. Uh, I mean, I mean, stop and think about this. When Jesus Christ was, was, when Jesus Christ was crucified and buried, what did the disciples think? That's it. Back to the fishing boats. It was good while it lasted. I mean, look, read the road to Emmaus, right? They were, yeah, the two guys that were down in the dumps and Christ showed up and walked with them and tried to show them, well, the Old Testament had that. But you know what? The problem is if you didn't understand the new, it's hard to understand the old. If you didn't, you can look back and say, well, duh, of course I should have figured it out. Well, if you didn't have the New Testament, you wouldn't know what those passages meant in the old. You'd have an incomplete knowledge. All right, of, of that. So, yeah, the Jews knew certain things, but they didn't have a fully, completely formed theology. All right? But they did know this. They knew what it was like to have a relationship with God. Who's, who's one person in the Old Testament that had that? Pardon? Well, Enoch did, right? He's an, he's an interesting character, you know. 
I mean, stop and think about it. You take a walk one day and God says, you know, I'll just come on up. You don't need to go home. That sort of be cool, wouldn't it? You know, not have to go back home. Um, he was such a rebuke to his society that God took him home early. Not early, but he never had to go through death. Um, David, look at look at the relationship that David had. He was called the friend of God, right? Abraham, the friend of God. Um, Abraham was not a deep theologian. I mean, good night. If Abraham showed up, he would he would know less. He would have known less about God than your first grader does. I mean, he was not a theologian, but he did know enough about what God said to do what God told him to do. And think about the faith that he had. I mean, at age 75, right, God shows up. You know how many times God appeared to Abraham in the span of 25 years? It's only about four times. You know, we think that, well, you know, every night Abraham went out and talked with God. No, God showed up four times in his whole, you know, his lifetime. And yet that was enough for him to do what God told him to do. It's always been by faith, by believing what God said. And the content of what God wants you to believe has varied. It has varied over time. What did the patriarchs believe in? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They believed the promise of God that he would make a great nation of them. That's, not, that's about the extent of their understanding. What did the Jews believe? Well, what did God told them? What did God say to them? They knew a little bit more, right? And what do we believe now? Well, we know the full story. We know who Jesus is and what he did and why he came. So when God shows up today, what is it that we are to believe? Well, what did he tell us? And what's important to understand is that nowadays, what is required for someone to become a Christian? What must they believe in? The person and work of Christ. Who he is, why he came, what he did, right? And and it's more it's more than just knowing the facts, right? I mean, people say, well, all you need to know is believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for your sins, and he's coming again. You know who believes that? Well, the Catholics believe that. The Mormons believe that. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that. Are they in heaven? Are they Christians? Are they born again? Are they believers? Mormons believe that. I, I, I've had many conversations with our neighbors who are Mormons, and they believe that Jesus died for your sins. They believe that. Problem is, they got the wrong Jesus. But he died. He died as a sacrifice for sin. They believe that. Yeah. He's not God. He's a God. But he died for your sins. See, see the and and by the way, that, that's that that's one of the very important things that you know as, as believers, as Christians, that we need to really understand and really really come to grips with. Just because someone uses God and Jesus and Bible and you know they use these terms doesn't mean they know 
or even mean the same things that we mean. I mean, I asked my Mormon neighbor, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, absolutely they believe that. But you know what they mean by that? What do you mean when you say he's the Son of God? Well, what do you mean? If you say Jesus is the Son of God, what, what, do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, who, what do you mean by that? And so why do you use son? What, what's, what's the term son used for? Huh? He's the exact representation of the invisible God, and the term son is used to help us understand the relationship, at least, between the first and second member of the Trinity as it comes to redemption. But the Mormons believe that it means that he is spiritually God's son. In fact, he is God's firstborn son between Elohim and one of his many wives. He is the firstborn son. And by the way, we're his stepbrothers. All of us in here are his stepbrothers and stepsisters. We're all spirit beings. We're all spirit children of Elohim and one of his many wives, which is why you have polygamy. We're all, and so Jesus is our half-brother. And by the way, Satan is our half-brother too. So when you ask them, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And they say, absolutely. You don't say, great, wonderful, you're a Christian, you're in. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And it's very important to understand that when it comes to, you know, when we witness, when we talk, when we deal with people, just because we use the same words don't mean we mean the same thing. All right? It doesn't mean we believe the same thing. I noticed that once a man and I went to a Jehovah's wedding, somebody she worked with, and almost everything they said up there was biblical. You could see it, you know. You notice there's something missing, but it really, it can fool you real easily. They fool you real easily. And, and you think that, yes, this person truly believes and they truly... But listen, if you have a defective Christology, you don't go to heaven. That's it. I mean, you do not get there. You just don't. You don't make it there. You cannot have a defective Christology and be in the kingdom. All right. Um, God, yeah. Who is Jesus? Okay. You're not in God's, you're in Satan's. Even though you're not even totally aware that you're believing. Yes. How is it that you know spiritual truth? Holy Spirit, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, can you really understand spiritual truth? No, you can't. You can't. Now, I, I took classes from college professors who could read Hebrew like you read the Sunday morning newspaper cartoons. They didn't know who God was. They could read the Old Testament Hebrew. They could read the New Testament in the Greek language. And they could, they could give you what, every, what 500 people believed about God, but they didn't know who God was. They don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, can you know God? No, you're insensitive. So salvation is always by grace. It's always activated by faith. Faith in what? In what God has revealed. 
And here's, here's the key to understanding the book of Acts. And by the way, also the book of Hebrews, that's a freebie. Toss in the book of Hebrews too. Hebrews is a book transition as well. And what is the writer of Hebrews doing? He's writing to Jews who are sitting on the fence. They know about the new covenant. They understand the gospel. They understand the content of the gospel. And they are in danger of saying, nah, I'm going to go back and kill a goat tomorrow down at the temple. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you do that, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Why? Jesus is a complete sacrifice. And what do they now know? That he is the complete sacrifice, right? What, what has not changed, here's the point. What has not changed between the Jew and the old and the Jew and Gentile and the new is not how you appropriate salvation, right? Always by faith. What has changed is what is the content of that faith. You understand that? What is the content of what it is that you're to believe? You know, and, and that's why when we when we preach and we, you know, we witness to people, it's very important. There's there's a there's a core content that you got to bring to the gospel. That if you miss, they're not a Christian. There needs to be the element of who is Jesus, right? Who is he? He's God. He's man. What did he do? He died on the cross. Well, you know, there's, all, there's thousands and millions of Jews that died on the cross. What made him so special? So you got to bring in the, the fact that he was the sinless son of God, right? And you got to bring in the concept that he took our place. He took our punishment. You got to bring that in. You got to bring in the fact that he actually died, right? You have to bring in the fact that he rose again. What's why is the resurrection such a big deal? Shows that God accepted him, right? I mean, you know, every other religious leader on the planet is still in the tomb except him, right? What made Jesus different? He rose again from the dead. And not only did he rise again from the dead, he actually appeared to people physically. They saw him. They touched him. He had breakfast with him on the beach. Right? No. Fish on the beach. And they saw him. And so you got to get to the person and work of Christ and you got to get to the sinful condition, right? You can't give people the gospel and not bring up the concept that, you know, you're a sinner and you're under divine judgment, right? If you're going to be saved, the question is, saved from what? Well, you're a sinner. You're under divine judgment. And you got to bring in the concept of repentance. What's that? S sorrow over sin, change. You know, this idea to say, well, you know, take Jesus as your Savior and you don't worry about the obedience a bit and all that stuff. That's later on. Can you imagine Christ taking you on that? Did he take the disciples on that? What did he tell them to do? Hey, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my dad first. How was his response? Let the dead bury the dead. Well, let me, let me get my inheritance first. Well, no man who puts his hand to the pile and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. 
the whole point there is that there's a content to the gospel. And what, what the struggle in the early church was, and what we're going to see as we work our way through the book of Acts, is transitioning from the mentality of the old covenant to the truths of the new covenant. That was the struggle. Because how was a Jew taught they were saved? How is how the Jew, the average Jewish person, if you were to ask them, are you going to heaven, what would they have said? Huh? Yeah. They, they, kept, they, kept their, they had their pride in three things. They had their pride in their heritage. All right? How do you know that? See, I failed already. I, he didn't even have a Bible for us on that. Well, I'll tell you where you can go to go dig this out. Go to Romans chapter 2, all right? And also go to John 8. Remember in John 8, Christ talked to the Pharisees and they said, Well, we don't know who your father is, but we're of Abraham. We're Abraham's seed. We're in. In fact, the Jewish rabbis taught that Jews had a go to heaven free card. You're in. Your heritage makes you a part of God's people. You're a part of Abraham's lineage. You're in. You've got it. All right. They also put their pride in something else. Circumcision. And again, where do you get that? Well, go to Romans 2. And also Romans 4 is another good one to talk about that. But they had idea, look, if you got circumcised, you're in. In fact, one of the rabbis taught that Abraham sits at the gates of hell and does not allow any circumcised Jew to enter. So no matter how bad you were as a Jew, you, got, you didn't go in there. All right? What else did they place their trust in? They had the law, right? Law of God, I got the law. I'm in. And... Paul's argument to them there said, you know what, it's better to not have the law than have it and not do it, right? It's better to not know than to know and not do. And that's his whole argument, by the way, in Romans chapter 2 and 3. He says, you know, you have the law and you make your boasts of God and all of that stuff, and yet you break the law day after day after day and think nothing of it. By the law, they're not referring to the Ten It's more than that. Referring to the, all the stuff the parents Right. Generally, when you look at the New Testament, this term law, when we think of law, what do you think of? Well, biblically, in the Bible. Ten Commandments, all right? Well, we think of the Ten Commandments, all right? And, of course, that is part of the law. That, 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 is, a, that is a significant part. But it's, I'll tell you what, the law is a lot bigger than just Ten Commandments. You also have, included in that, you have the ceremonial law. And that all had to do with the, the temple, with the sacrifices, with you know, all that rigmarole that you did as a, as a Jew. Um, the Sabbath laws were part of that. Um, um, tithing was part of that. You know, the giving was all part of the ceremonial law. Why, what was the tithe given for? He had to had to pay the priest. You had, you had there you had one twelfth of your population that was not allowed to 
own property and work in the fields. Well, how did people eat in those days? You worked in the fields. If you're not allowed to work in the field, how did you live? Well, you lived by the by the tithes, which was a national tax in Israel. That's how you lived. What? We got a tax man in here. But that's all part of the ceremonial law, all right? And then you had what we what they call the national law of Israel. How how were Jews expected to live under a theocracy? Um, the laws regarding usury, the uh, the year of jubilees, all that kind of stuff, all had to do with the national law. And usually, when 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 Paul or somebody talks about the law in the New Testament, they're talking about it in the broadest sense, which would include all of these things. Not just the Ten Commandments, it would include all of them. Alright? And how do you know that? How do we know that? Well, we know that when we get to Acts 15 in a few weeks, where they're debating in the Jerusalem Council, and the question is, well, do we have them keep the ceremonies regarding circumcision and the eating of meat? Right? And remember Cornelius and Peter's problem with the, the sheet that God let down and he said, I'm not going to eat anything unclean. God said, don't you tell me what's clean and unclean. The whole, the whole problem, that's all part of the ceremonial law. So usually when we see law in Acts and all that, it's the broadest possible sense. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's really the entire code that was given to Israel. You see in Exodus and Leviticus and part of Numbers. All right, it's, it's all of it. And their identity, their, their boast, the Pharisees' boast was, we're going to be in heaven because we keep this. See? And not only did they keep this, but what did they do? They added a whole ton of garbage on top of this. All right? They added all kinds of laws. You know, God says, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What was, what's the purpose of that? Why remember the Sabbath day? What's God trying to get you to do? Well, rest, so that you can do what? Meditate, think about Him. A day, a day of relaxation where you can spend some time probably with God and and that it's it's time off. But what did the Israelites do? What did the Pharisees do? They created so many rules regarding the Sabbath day that they totally missed the whole point that God gave it in the first place. They had rules on how many letters you could write on the Sabbath day. They had a rule on how far you could walk on the Sabbath day. They had rules about, you can't, you can't, remember when Christ was going through the fields on the Sabbath day and they shucked the corn and was eating the kernels and they said, you're working because you're threshing the corn? Oh, they had all the rules because they had beliefs that if you didn't wash correctly, demons could get on your hands and you could eat these demons. That's all in the rabbinical writings. It's it's funky what they believe. They believe all kinds of stuff, you know. But you feel that born again Christians have taken it to the other extreme and say you don't even consider the Ten Commandments relevant. Yeah. You know, God will forgive me whatever I do. So. Yeah. It's all about a relationship. It's all about relating to God. Why do you want to keep the Sabbath day? Because there's a rule, God will beat you on the head if you don't do it. You want to spend time with Him, right? You want to spend time with Him. Why is it you're not to have other gods before Him? 
He's a killjoy. Well, no, it's a relationship. When I married my wife, I told her I'm not going to pay any attention to other women. Why? It's a relationship, right? Other than she'll whip me if I don't. But it's a relationship, right? If I love her, I'm not going to be wanting to love someone else. If I want to, you know, if I love her, I'm going to spend time with her. I'm going to, if you love God, you're going to, you're going to want to be with him. You're not going to want to have other things ahead of him. You're not going to take his name in vain. In other words, you're not going to presume on his character. Oh, God will forgive me. After all, you know, I'm his kid and he'll let me get away with murder, you know. You don't do that. You want to spend time with God. You want to, you want to do those things that make God happy because you want to, not because you have to, but you want to. It's all about a relationship. But what the Jews had done is they had reduced the relationship to rules. They had created a set of rules so cumbersome that they couldn't even keep them. So one of the rabbis came up with the bright idea, says, well, if you just, if you just intend to keep them, that's the same as keeping them. Because they knew they couldn't keep them. They knew they couldn't keep them 24 by 7. And what Christ, if anything, Christ did in Matthew 5, what did he do? He said, you've heard it said by them of old time, you shall not kill. But if you hate, what have you done? You've killed. You've heard it said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery. You've said, heard it said by them of old time, keep your word. I say, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. You don't have to swear by a Bible or swear by God. If, if you say yes, it means yes. If you say no, it means no. Christ was getting them back to what is the intention of the law. The intention of the law was never given as a set of rules. It was given as a, as a definition of a relationship. But what had the Jews done at Christ's time? They had totally destroyed the entire concept of that and created a religion so cumbersome that nobody could keep it. And that's why he kept running into these Pharisees time and time again. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts. One of the hardest things that Paul had to deal with is he go into a town, he talked about salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, and Two weeks after he left, the Judaizers come trotting in and say, oh yeah, but you also have to get circumcised, keep the law, not eat pork, yada, 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 yada. And they burden the people with a whole bunch of rules. Do we do the same thing? Their leaders had totally lost the true concept of what religion was. And see, that's what Christ did on the Sermon on the Mount. People say, well, he was redefining the law. One of the, I read a lot of commentaries on that. One said, well, what he was doing is he's redefining the law. You know, when he said, you heard it said by them of old time, but I say to you. Well, he's redefining the law. No, he's not redefining the law. What is he doing? And he's telling them, this is what God really meant. The problem is, you've messed it up. The problem is you've twisted it. The problem is you've, you've used it to your own advantage. And the unfortunate thing that, that the Jews had done is they, they had so taken what, what God had originally given as true and good and pure, and they've twisted it and made it a club to beat on people, and they've made it a system of works righteousness so that 
they took pride in keeping the law. Remember the two guys who went down to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican, right? Yeah, you had a Pharisee and a tax collector. What did the tax collector do? How'd he pray? He wouldn't even lift up his head. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. How about the public or how about the Pharisee? Well, I'm glad I'm not like I'm not I'm not like other people. I'm not like that bad guy over there. Who got justified? Now we do the same thing in our churches. We 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 fall into the same traps. Some of our churches, you know, if you if you come in, you don't have the right hair cup haircut or use the right Bible version or have the right clothes on or something like that. You're you're out. You're out. We're little Pharisees. Unfortunately. You know, they don't want to go to church because church is too confusing. They don't understand a lot of what's going on in church. But they love Jesus and they believe the Bible and know Jesus on their own. They just have to be saved. Not really. Because what does John say in First John? If you say you love God and you hate your brothers, you're a liar. They don't want to be around them. They don't say they hate them. They say they don't understand the, all the uh, what goes on in the church. You know. Well, they should understand. They should go. Yeah. Some, well, the, the whole point is. But sometimes uh, the offices of the church can burden you with things that you don't understand. Well, you got to be at Sunday school, Bible study, and all that. This is good. This is for my enlightenment. And, but they put such a burden on you, you feel like you kill somebody if you don't go. Yeah. And that's kind of scary to the newcomer. It is. You know, that, that's why... The other rules, you know? Yeah. But, you know, all of us, you know, if you go to, all of us are in here from different churches. You know, some of us are from the same church. But we all have different traditions and that. But, you know, there are some churches, you know, my mother-in-law went to a church where the pastor said, if, if I see any woman come in here and slacks, I'm going to send her home. Well, that's a good way to reach the community for Jesus, right? Can you imagine Jesus Christ? Tell, I'm sorry, but go home and get a different robe on and then come talk to me. You know, what kind of silliness is that? See, we're, we're, the point is, when you do that, you're falling into the trap of the Pharisees. Now, that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all, right? No. There are certain things that are in good taste, sure. you know. But the whole point is, we create rules, too. We create burdens on people, too. We do the same thing. Sure. And we need to, you know, if anything, what did Christ do? He said, come with me because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But we have rules everywhere. That's an excuse for people. If you don't do 
why they've got all these rules to return stay home and say, oh, well, I'm not going anywhere because they've got all these rules and yeah. regulations. So and sometimes, sometimes you got to go along with the rules even if they're silly. You know, I, I think I think and I, you know, there, there are people that, you know, if they're if their excuse is I don't go to church because it's too confusing. There's a church they can go to where it's not confusing. You don't have to just stay home. You know, I mean, if you love Christ, you're going to want to be around believers, right? You want to be around them. You know, if you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I can't stand other Christians. John calls you a liar. He says, you're a liar. How can you love God that you haven't seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen? You're a liar. You're, you're shining yourself on. You're, you're feeding yourself a lie. You're deceiving yourself. You can't do that. Now, admittedly, there are some Christians that I don't get along with, but. Yeah, I love them. I love them when they're not around more than when they're around. But, but I want to be around believers. You know what I mean? I want to be around other Christians. I look forward to this class. Why? Because there's a bunch of us in here that love the Lord and we want to study His Word and be together. This is this. This gives me energy. It's like, oh man, I got to see Bart again. I'm tired of that guy. You know? Yeah. What I was, was going to say, Alan, is that it's kind of sad, but I think there's some people that just make a career out of finding fault. It doesn't matter what church. Yeah. That is not a spiritual gift, you know. Yeah. There's always be something wrong. Yeah, some people say, my spiritual gift is criticism. No, it's not. That's not a spiritual gift. All right. But it's not a spiritual gift. All right. You know, I, I just uh, preached about a month ago at a small church in downtown Illyria. And the night before I did, you know, God spoke to me. And I, I threw out what I was ready to go in there and say. And that night, he told me what he wanted me to say. And I went in there Sunday morning and I told him, your church is going to die. And naturally, I said, one down the street is too, and the other one is too. But what I said, if you don't change, it was a congregation of about 300, and it was down to about 60. And it's because they won't change. Um, they are an example of why I left the church when I was 13, 14 years old. Why do you have long hair? Why do you have earrings? You know, all that stuff. So they have no kids coming into the church at all. Yeah. I didn't have earrings. I was trying to make a point. Yeah. I, I had my, uh, my peace beads and my long hair. You know Howard Hendrick? Anybody know who Howard Hendricks is? Dallas, Professor Dallas Theological Seminary. He was called in, the, I guess, to consult this one church. They were having the same problem, you know, couldn't grow and all of that. And when he was done, he came in and gave the board his report, and they said, "Well, you know, what, what do we do? How do we? How do we? You know, we're, we're having trouble meeting our budget. You know, we, we our offerings are down. You know, all this stuff." He said, "I'll tell you what you do. So you need you need to put a fence around your church. Then you need to charge admission and for people to come in and see how you did church 50 years ago." You won't change. You won't change. One of the things, and this is interesting here, one of the things you're going to find in Acts is that that church is dynamic. And why is it dynamic? Because they haven't done it before. No one can say, well, we haven't done that. Well, they haven't done anything before. This is all brand new to them. They don't have any, 
you know, institutionalized practices and procedures that they got to deal with. They're innovating, right? Acts chapter 6, they got a problem with the, the widows. We're not getting the daily uh, food allowance. So what do they do? They innovate. They come up with the deacons. There's a lot of innovation. We're not allowed to innovate anymore in the churches. There are some churches you're not allowed to innovate. If you come up with a new idea, it's got to be of the devil, you know, because we, you know, we've got it all down right. You know, there's some that are convinced that this is the first time in human history where we've figured out how to worship God right. Everybody else blown it, you know. Um, there's, and again, it's within taste and, and within reasonable parameters, but, you know, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that you don't think will fit in there. But they're going to wonder why you're there. You know, how'd you get there? How'd you get there? You know, well, Bart's got great problems because, you know, the Bible says the tax collectors get into heaven before the Pharisees. So, yeah, so. Um, so what we're going to see in the book of Acts is, is a is this the struggle of, of coming from the old to the new covenant of going from. People who are struggling with with the, you want to call it the trappings, the baggage of their upbringing, and struggling with how do I, what part, what part of that do I get rid of, and what part of that is good? We all have baggage, don't we? We all bring baggage along with us. Those are our preconceptions, uh, the things we grew up with, the things we're comfortable with, you know, and and they're struggling to go from old to new, to, to, to make this transition, to go from a very nationalistic view of things to a pluralistic view of things, right? Because the Jew, if you weren't a Jew, you were just fuel for hell. That's all your existence was. You just stoked the flames of hell. That's, that's what God created you to do if you weren't a Jew. All right? And they're struggling to make that transition. And that's what you're going to see you know, as we work our way through the book of Acts. So that's the background. Any any comments or questions or anything? Yeah, Don. With everybody having placing their trust in everything, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody like that, why did a good number of people just leave what they thought behind and went running after Jesus? Why did they do that? Tradition. Tradition. They were stuck in their traditions. Oh, except the ones that did. Right. The ones that left. I got into those crazy people who didn't follow their leaders mm -hmm. and went running after Jesus. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, the other people. I'm sorry. I, 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 I misinterpreted. What did Christ say? If you don't hate father, mother, sister, brother more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. They were they they knew that there was something better. They left the old to go to the new. Am I on the same? Are we on the same page? Yeah, I I just have a hard time thinking about the average Jew being willing to turn against what they've been taught all their lives. You're right. You know. And that was a major stumbling block. Go, go try to talk to somebody who's from Islam to be Christian. 
I mean, they might, you know, they might as well just shoot themselves and be done with it because their their families disown them. They're they're an outcast from society. Well, back in the early '90s, when they introduced the Jews, they had a lot of organizations and groups that were trying to organize themselves against the Jews. Well, I had a yeah. The destruction of the temple was when they stopped. About 70 A.D. is when they stopped. All right, that's that's when they were no longer able to offer sacrifices. 70 A.D. Yes, yeah, 70 A.D. Well, that's the preterist viewpoint. You know all about that. Yeah. yeah. I had to write a paper on it. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Gentiles have any knowledge of God apart from what they saw in the Jews' knowledge of God? Not really. Um, there were certain ones called God fears that were devout. Cornelius was a God fear, they called, called him. So there were some Gentiles that were attracted to the moral teachings. Of Judaism, of Christian, it wasn't Christianity; it was Judaism. Um, the Jews were, you know, moral type people. At least they they saw adultery as a sin. Whereas in Rome, you know, if you weren't committing adultery, you were weird. You know, um, they actually had a moral code. So there were certain God fears that were attracted to the the good parts of Judaism. But by and large, no, Jew, Gentiles were outside the covenant. Um, they 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 were not. And what did God um, really task the Jews with doing in the Old Testament. They were to be a light to the world. They were to be an example. They were to be the ones that would take the message of God to the to the nations. And they said, no, we want to do that. We want to keep it to ourselves. So it was a very nationalistic kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, Don hit an important point. It was very difficult to break out of Judaism because to do so, you basically had to turn your back on your family. You had you had to literally you were literally disowned. And even today, if you're a Jew, sometimes when you have you convert to Christianity, they have a funeral for you. As far as you're concerned they're concerned you're dead. Treat the other guys, go say something, and you won't say nothing. Nothing that pertains to God or mm -hmm. anything. You just he'll talk other stuff, you know, cheating and all that stuff, and talk it, but you won't talk yeah. anything about God. What, the, the, yeah. Too. Yeah. I mean, you, you even see this in other, like Catholicism, you know, where it's very tough for a devout Catholic to break out of that because to do so, they got to repudiate their entire family. You know, there's some in here who are, you know, I, I've talked to some who came out of Catholicism and, you know, their family just thinks they're they're hell bound. You know, they're just, you know, they're outcasts. Um, Mormonism is another one that it's a tough one to break out of because they have such a, such a sense of community and identity um, that, that's tough to get out of that system because you're enmeshed into it. You know, it becomes your social net. It becomes your friends. 
You know, what if if all your if if to become a Christian, you had to give up your family, your friends, and your job? Think about that. And yet, that's what happened to the Jews. That's basically what they had to give up. And they, they, you know, Jesus was a man that people were attracted to. But notice what he said: If you don't hate father, sister, mother, and brother, you're not worthy to be my disciple. I was just going to add to what you were saying about being a friend of mine. Actually, a client, friend, someone who asked, he became a Christian 20 years ago when he left the country. He said, "There's no way on earth that he's fucked. There's no way he's going back." You know. Family kind of them. I mean, it's death sometimes, you know? Yeah, to convert is... Yeah, in Saudi Arabia, it's the death penalty. If you convert to Christianity, you, they put you to death. Yeah. I mean, you know, now, now you say, well, that's horrible, you know? Well, stop and think about it, you know? What kind of disciple does God want? Somebody that's there for the good times? Right? What, is, what, what did Christ? What was Christ after? What did the rich young ruler say? You know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know, keep the law. Well, I did all of that. What else is there? Give your money away. Uh, see ya. You know, and that's the last he ever showed up. Why? Not willing. And by the way, what did Christ tell you in Luke? Count the cost. Do you want to follow me? You better count the cost because it's going to cost you something. Don't just follow me just to follow me. Don't get caught up in the emotion of the moment. There's a cost to being a Christian. It may cost you your life. It may cost you your health. It may cost you all your money. It may cost you your family. It may cost you everything. And that, that was tough for Jews to give that up. It's very tough. Right. Right. So let's go to let's start the book of Acts. You say finally I'm going to actually go to the book of Acts. A week and a half in and we're haven't even got the verse one yet. The former treatise I'm Account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the former treatise? Luke, right? We already discussed last week, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. He was the author of both. The Greek is the same. He would have an opportunity to write it. When, when, do, you think, when, when do we think he wrote it? Somewhere around 60-62. Paul was in Caesarea Philippi in prison there before he made his journey to Rome in AD 62. So that would have been a good time for... Luke to have done the research and sat down and wrote out this gospel and the book of Acts. Until the day which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostle whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, 
being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, between the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension, what was he busy doing? Teaching. Many things. And also, what, what Luke is sitting here, this is, you got to understand, the readers who were reading the book of Acts, many of them were alive when Christ was crucified, right? In fact, some of them may have even seen Christ because he appeared unto many people. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred at once, says in 1 Corinthians 15. So Christ was not secret. He was, it was open. They knew it. And it says he gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Who are these apostles? Were they the twelve? Eleven now, right? And why were they apostles? Huh? Yeah. And why? He chose them. There are a lot of people that followed Jesus, right? There are 70 we know of that he sent out two by two, right? So what made those 12 different? He chose them. Yeah, you got that going to trip over that. He chose them. And, and how did he choose them? Well, in Matthew, we're told that he went up on a mountain to pray, prayed all night. When he came down from the mountain, he chose 12. Out of all of the people that were following him, he chose these 12 guys. Why did he choose those 12 guys? Were they smarter than the rest of them? No. no. If anything, they were dumber, right? Don't know. But he chose them to be his apostles. And what is an apostle? Generally, just on a general level, what is an apostle? That's the big A apostle. Well, they they were apostles, the, the twelve, including Matthew, Matthias, and Paul, planted churches. That was part of that. No. Disciple is follower. A disciple is follower. An, an apostle comes from, to throw from. Apostello. Stello means to throw. Apo from. It's a sent one. It's someone you send. It's an emissary. You know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm in a class, I say, well, you know, somebody try it down to the kitchen and tell Don something, you would be my apostle. You would be my sent one. You, you, you'd be my representative. Now, in the New Testament... There are there are twelve special apostles that Christ chose. They're the eleven minus Judas. There's Matthias who replaced Judas, and then there's Paul. What was different about them than the other apostles? What made those thirteen men different than the rest of them? They walked with Christ. They knew his entire ministry. What else? They were handpicked by who? Jesus handpicked these guys. What were they given by Christ? They were given the word of salvation and they were 
And they were given a, they were given authority. They were given his authority. They were given. You think of an apostle as an ambassador. You 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 represent someone bigger than yourself. Paul didn't represent himself. He represented Christ. He was Christ's apostle. But these, but also the apostles, the the the, the thirteen were personally commissioned by Christ. They had they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And they were charged with the responsibility of becoming the foundation of the church. Thirteen, twelve. There are twelve. Paul was an apostle as well. Oh. Okay. Yeah. As one born out of due time, he was an apostle. He was a valid. He was not one of the twelve. They have a special place of honor, but he was nevertheless an apostle. Was he personally commissioned by Christ? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was he was a special case. He was a special case. He was a special case. But he he, he calls himself an apostle, again and again and again. Um, he uses that term. He certainly was the foundation, if anything, of the church. Right? I mean, fifty percent of the New Testament is ascribed to Paul, who wrote it. He wrote more than the New Testament. A little, a little apostle. No, I think he's a big A apostle because he was personally commissioned by Christ in his task. And that's, that's really the differentiation. And he had personal revelation. He was personally commissioned by Christ. He was personally taught. He had the gifts of the apostles. What were the gifts of the apostles? Yeah, he said, I was born out of due time. I, I, I was like an abortion late. Not abortion, because that's dead. But he's like a a premature child born out of due time. He was recognized as an apostle by the other apostles. All right. He had the apostolic gifts. Which were those? The miraculous sign gifts. Now we're going to talk about that whole thing later. All right. Can there? Can there? Well, they do. There, there, by the way, there's, is there any doubt that there's a lot of little A apostles running around? No. There's no doubt. We are apostles. I'm an apostle with a little A. I'm an apostle with a little A. Because all an apostle is is one cent, right? Did Christ send you into the world to be his representatives? Yes. Yeah. So we're little A apostles. There's no doubt about that. But the question is, is there capital A apostles? Only on TBN. Only on TBN. I'm sorry. Um, why is that? Why, why do you think that's the case? They're coming out. They Well, you know, I can say I'm. I can say I'm. Whoever and don't make it right. Why, why do you think there's? And, and but this is this is this is a, a debated. People debate this. But, but why do you think there are no capital A apostles today? Because what, what were the characteristics of the Twelve and, and Paul? What, what, what characteristic did they have that were different than all the others? What, were, what was the difference? They were witnesses. They were witnesses. Okay, what else were they? Paul might have seen Christ. He was certainly aware of Christ. All right. 
By who? By and how were they commissioned by Christ? Christ showed up to them, right, and commissioned them personally. All right, there's a personal commissioning. What else made them different? That was the twelve, and that was, and and that's an interesting. That was um, most Bible interpreters say that it's not that they received the Spirit at that time, but that was a promise of them receiving the Spirit, which they certainly did in the in the upper room. So did Judas not receive the Holy Spirit? He wasn't in the upper room when he breathed on him. Very true. Yeah. He was sprayed out all over the valley floor, you know. Um. What else was true of the of the of the twelve? What did they have? What they had miracle gifts. All right. Now that's a whole debated subject. Like some people say, well, they have miracle gifts today. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, when when and we're going to talk about this, but but let's take the gift of healing. Who were the apostles able to heal? Anyone, anyone who was sick, and not only did they heal anyone who was sick, what else were they able to do? Raise people from the dead. Now, do we have any of those guys going around today? No. And by the way, if if, if you're you know these supposed people, with the gift of healing, if they touch you or whatever, and you don't get better, whose fault is it? Mine. You didn't have faith. Well. The guy, you know, guy sitting lame at the gate, beautiful in the temple in Acts 5 here. Did he did he have any faith that he was going to get up and walk around? He was looking for a handout. The last thing he figured out is he was going to get up and walk around. But the point is when you look at the gift, by the way, that doesn't mean that God can't heal today. God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And I'm not going to tell him what he can and can't do. But when you look at the apostolic gift of healing and compare that what is passed off as the gift of healing today, Two distinct different things. What we'll talk about that when we get to there, but they're two distinctly different things. It's not the same. You know, um, do you have guys drinking poison today? Well, I mean, they drink poison and die, but I mean, you know, a preacher coming in town, he gets, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drink this arsenic, you know, and he got some poor guy there, he takes it, falls over dead, this guy drinks it, and he's fine. You have that going on? No. Well, like down in Jellico, Tennessee, they got the snake handlers, you know. Um, the, the, the point is, when you look at the, 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 the nature of the miraculous gifts that the apostles had and compare that to what is purported as the miraculous gifts today, totally different. It's, it's not the same thing. It's, and you don't have to tell me to tell you. You just need to go read your Bible and then see what these guys are doing. It's different. If, you, if, anybody, if somebody had the apostolic gift of healing today, they could walk into Larry Memorial Hospital and heal anybody in there. No matter what they had. And they could walk out healed. Could Christ have done that? He could give somebody a new heart. He could, you know, he could heal them. He could give them a new leg, a new arm, a new eye. You know, he, and it didn't depend on the faith of the person getting healed at, at all. Um, they don't have that today. All right, you don't see that in the apostolic or what, what's passed off as the gift of healing today. 
unfortunately. You know, I, I would love to have somebody with the gift of healing today. You know, that'd be a good thing to have, but. And also Hebrews talks about the signs of the apostles were done. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that. But the apostles were, were special men. And, and in fact, Paul says the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Right? So where do you stick the foundation of a building? At the bottom. All right? You don't stick it higher. It's, it serves as the foundation. So if the apostles are the foundation of the early church, would that seem to imply that you have apple, apostles today? No. Um, well, the what are you going to do with the Okay. That's a good question, because Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4. He says he gave unto the church first apostles, then prophets, then pastor teachers. And, and there's exegetical, um, 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 I want to call it uh, evidence, that would seem to indicate that it was not a pastor, comma, teacher, but a pastor, dash, teacher. Okay? And then the evangelist. All right? So, so you have those, those, four, those four gifted men, all right? Well, here's a question. Do you have prophets today? No. As you see, in the, as, as you see prophets in the scriptures? No. No. Okay. You're saying you got pastors and teachers and evangelists, not prophets. Because they were the foundation. They, they, there, was a, there was a time when that was a valid, bona fide Absolutely, those those existed. They were the foundation. You can have a prophetic event. You know, like a pastor can have a strong teaching anointing or a evangelistic anointing. Yes. A little bit prophetic, but I don't think the prophetic has Old Testament. Right, and see that that's that's a good that's a very good distinction to make. Yeah. What does prof? Well, when I say prophecy, what do you think of? If I say someone is a prophet, what do you think of? Telling the future, predicting the future. But in the Bible, that's not what a prophet did. What did a prophet do? What did the Old Testament prophet mainly do? He was a preacher. Now, now was there a component of his ministry that was predictive? Yeah, sure there was. Isaiah, do you think Isaiah just went along every day just spouting things that were going to happen in the future? Is that all he did? No, he was a preacher. He, 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 he not only had the predictive component of talking about you know, the coming Messiah and the, you know, Isaiah 53 and all that, but he was a preacher to his generation. He, he, mainly, he was a proclaimer of God's already revealed truth Although, because of the incomplete canon, because God had not fully revealed everything to man, there was a predictive component to that. The same in the old in the New Testament. Were there prophets in the New Testament that could predict future events? Yes, there were. Why? The full word had to be given. And how did God give the full word? He gave it through prophecy. All right. So, do we have prophets today? 
Well, yes, in the sense that we have men who preach and have the anointing of proclaiming the word of God. And by the way, all prophet means is profane me. It means to speak before. It was used to speak before a crowd. If somebody stood up and gave a message, they were called a prophet. They were someone who stood and spoke. All right. We in the in our English usage brings the total predictive component in. That's all we think of. We just think, well, they're just a predictor of the future. No, they are a preacher. First um, Corinthians fourteen three talks about how a prophet is one who is a preacher. Okay, and and, and even if they had the predictive component, ninety nine percent of the things they said had not were not predictive. Nathan was a prophet. Did he get revelation from God? Sure he did, right? But most of the time, what did he do? No, he, he was the one that, that dealt with David on his sin with Bathsheba. He was a pastor. He was a preacher. He was a speaker. All right? Now, now are, are certain... And this goes back. This is a good um, discussion. Are there certain components that the apostles had that you see today? Things like leadership and and the ability to to plant churches and things like that. Yeah, you you have that. But a full fledged apostle with the capital A, personally commissioned by Jesus, no, you do not. Okay. Although they do, they you, you do have people that do some of that. All right. Um, do you have full-fledged apostles or prophets today? Well, no, but you do have people that have the gift of speaking, right, and preaching God's word. They are prophets. All right. They are seen as people who speak for God. They don't have that predictive component in that God is giving them new revelation. All right. And and that and we're probably going to talk more about this later on, but. But, you know, there are, there are people on, on, on the television and TVN and, and places say, you know, well, I'm getting new revelation from God. God's telling me new things. Okay? Well, let's think about that. If God is giving them new things, what would the nature of that new revelation be? What, what would be its characteristics? Whatever they, whatever they said should be congruent with what's already been spoken, right? We should be writing this stuff down, right? I mean, if God is giving revelation, right, a, a message to the church, we should be writing this stuff down. We should have the first, second, and third hen in here. Yeah. You know, we should have Copeland 1 and Copeland 2 or whatever. We, we should have new books of the Bible, all right? And, and and would God be given silly revelation? What kind of revelation did God give? Well, God was given revelation, and he did in the New Testament. He was given revelation per, directly to the person. What, what was the nature of that? That was serious. It was doctrine. It was teaching. It had to do with spiritual life. It was not who was going to win some silly football game. They, they have, have a God that understanding in the word. 
If that's illumination. That is illumination. Does God illuminate us? Yes. Hopefully, when you're done with this class, you're going to know something more about Acts than you did when you came in. That's not revelation. God did not reveal new things to you. It's already been revealed, but he has illuminated you to understand what he's already written down. The problem is when you have people with new revelation, all right, how do you validate that? How do I know? You get some guy, you get Benny Hinn standing up and says, it's just been revealed to me that there are nine members in the Trinity. He said this, I'm not making it up. There's nine members in the Trinity. The, the, the Father has a spirit, soul, and body. The Son has a spirit, soul, and body. The Holy Spirit has a spirit, soul, and body. So there's nine members in the Trinity. I'm not making it up. This is true stuff. Benny Hinn. All right. Nine members in the Trinity. All right. I don't watch him. I, I, I read about him, but I don't watch the guy. He gives me the willies. Huh? That's a good question. Why did he say that? We have the the point is we have the revelation and when Hen stands up and says well you know God told me that he really didn't mean that in the Bible he meant this so what he told you that he didn't tell me that you must have got that from pizza and beer that's a good one you know you get it from pizza and beer you know you have pizza and beer you have a revelation you come up with something you know it, it, you make it up you you make up your theology. God may have called, but God has given us what he wants us to know. Yeah. William Branham, yeah. Catherine Kuhlman, you know. When changed, because why? You're getting revelation from God. Who? What are you to tell me anything? You know. Listen, God has revealed Himself in His Word. He's told us what He wants us to know. Yeah. There's a group in Kansas City called the Kansas City Prophets. They pass themselves off as prophets. And they make predictions. The problem is the predictions don't come true. Now, what is the nature of biblical prophecy? It comes true. If it doesn't come true, what do you do to the prophet? You stone him. Well, they were, they were approached on this, and they said, well, God revealed to us that he's really not going to keep all the prophecies that we give because we're not ready for it yet. Now, I want to know, you know, what they've been smoking, and can I have some? All right? Because they're making that stuff up. They're, you know, you want to ask people, what are you smoking, and can I have some? Because when they come up with something that silly, like, well, God revealed to me that he's going to lie to me. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me that God had a revelation that he's going to give you a prophecy that doesn't come true? That's silliness. That's nothing. But that is, that is the problem. Folks, listen. God has given us what he wants us to know. It's right here. Now, our problem is we don't know this. Our problem is what, what you point out. It's illumination. 
It's not that God's going to tell me something new that he's not told anybody else in all of human history. That's what they come up with. Well, this is the first time God's ever laid this. You know, they, That's how you get start cults, right? That's where the cults come from. That's Joseph Smith who goes and says, Lord, what, what denomination are you joining? Well, they're all bad. Let's create a new one. We'll call it Mormonism. And now you've got millions of people sucked off into a cult because he got a revelation. All right? Folks, God has given us his word. We have it here. And when somebody comes up and says, God told me, and it doesn't square with what God has revealed, that person is a false prophet. And they are to be ignored and avoided. They're not to be followed. And don't let him pull this, touch not the Lord's anointed business. Because he's not the Lord's anointed. First Corinthians 14, the, spirit, the prophets are to judge the other prophets. When a man got up to speak, the other prophets, the other people who had the gift of teaching, were to judge what he said. They were not to just take it because he said it. Folks, there's deception out there. But what does touch my, touch not my Don't kill the king. I know. And the point is, they're not the Lord's anointed. I was going to say, who said they were so anointed? Well, they say they're anointed. They say they're anointed. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. It's okay. time to take a break. Yeah. Okay, what Paul is saying there is not revelation in the sense of new stuff that you don't know, but revelation in the sense that he reveals to you what he has already written down. And the spirit of wisdom is what? How to do what he's told you. That's what it's all about. Uh, to, to the Hebrew, if, if you, to a Hebrew, you were not a wise person if you did not do what, what you knew was right. You were a fool. And Paul is saying, I, I'm praying that God would give you an understanding and a comprehension in what he has given. That he would reveal to you, and we can use that term revelation, God reveals to you his truth. That's called illumination. He is revealing what he has already written down. When you read the Bible and you understand it, God has revealed something to you that he's already written down. And if what he's revealed to you is something that no one in 2,000 years of church history has ever thought of, it's probably the wrong thing. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.